This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Folks, when's the last time you checked your credit scores? Because your scores may change more often than you think, and you should know what they are now and not from a year ago. You know what they say, information is power, and Credit Karma is here to help out. The best thing? Credit Karma is always free and there's no catch. No credit card needed. Go to creditkarma.com or download the Credit Karma app now. Again, that's creditkarma.com or download the app. And now, enjoy the podcast. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Friends, Romans, countrymen, do you ever get tired of people comparing the United States to the Roman Empire? Usually with the implication that America is imminently approaching the same unfortunate fate. It's the kind of thing armchair historians bring up at cocktail parties, along with pointing out that Stalin killed more people than Hitler. But my guest today says the comparison is more than just a superficial cliché. He's an expert in Roman history who constantly gets asked that very question, is America Rome? And he points to some startling parallels between the U.S. and Rome in a new book called The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic. Mike Duncan is the host of the wildly popular podcasts Revolutions and the History of Rome, and today he has good news and bad news for us. The good news, America is not collapsing like the Roman Empire. The bad news, we're at the part just before the collapse. I know what you're thinking. He's going to say Trump is Caesar, Trump is Caesar. No, he says Trump is not Caesar. But he says many of the forces that drove Rome to ruin, including populist demagoguery, economic inequality, the erosion of societal norms, and arguments over who deserves to be a citizen, will sound very familiar to today's listeners. However, it's not all gloom and doom. He says there are some key differences that may offer hope, and he has some suggestions on how the American Republic can straighten course and avoid the same fate as the Roman Republic. Coming up with Mike Duncan, host of the History of Rome podcast, in just a moment. My guest today is Mike Duncan, who is one of the foremost history podcasters. His award-winning series, The History of Rome, chronicled the entire history of the Roman Empire over 189 episodes and remains one of the most popular history podcasts. He then embarked on an ongoing series called Revolutions, which explores various revolutions throughout history. Collectively, the History of Rome and Revolutions podcasts have received over 100 million downloads, and now he's written a new book that answers the question, Is America Rome? It's called The Storm Before the Storm, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic. Mike Duncan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Well, we were just talking before we went on mic here about where your interest in Roman history came from. Talk a little about how this all began for you. But I always had this intention to be like a writer, to be, I was going to get into yeah. like science fiction writing. I was going to get into uh, sort of fiction. I was going to write novels. That's, that's what was <laughs> going to be the thing that I did. Um, and when I went to college, you know, I, I got into like the English department because I was going to be like a writer and <laughs> being, being an English major never quite clicked for me. <laughs> and uh, I, what I discovered is that most of the people I was reading, like, you know, Vonnegut and Philip K. Dick and those guys, 
uh, were really well versed in history and in philosophy. And they had incredibly interesting things to say because they had spent so much time like sort of studying like the breadth and depth of civilization. And so I was like, I'll do that. Uh, and then I'll turn it into I'll turn it into books. And what happened is um, I just never made the pivot to fiction. And when I discovered um, I, I started really delving into Livy and Polybius and Plutarch and, you know, the guts of the of the ancient sources and uh, started up the history of Rome in 2007 to just I, I will narrate a nonfiction account okay. of of the Roman Empire from beginning to end, which is what I wound up doing. Yeah, the research that you were doing to write novels, you know, eventually you realized that the research is the thing. <laughs> yeah, the research itself was <laughs> so was so fascinating, yeah. and there were so many. Um, yeah. I mean, like you, you read like early Livy, you read you know the early history of Rome by Livy or like mm -hmm. Polybius. You know the stories that are buried in that material; they're just so good. They're so interesting. They're so compelling. Like their their characters are great. The conflicts are great. Um, the battles, uh, not just you know, not just physical like military battles, but also uh, battles between the patricians and the plebs over who's going to have control of Rome. Like all of this stuff is yeah. so interesting, and we never, nobody ever knows about most of it because that right. that material is so dry. That you know, you give it, you give it to like a twenty-year-old and say, "Here, you know, read Polybius." They're going to be asleep in like you know seven sentences. Um, but for whatever reason, it clicked for me, and I was just like, "I if I can just sort of update the language here a bit mm -hmm. and explain to people these stories from you know the four hundreds AD and the or excuse me, the four hundreds BC, the three hundreds BC, before you get to Julius Caesar, which is kind of the one era of Roman history that everybody does know about." Exactly. Um, yeah. That there's there's a thousand years worth of material here, and nobody else is <laughs> nobody else is using it. So I will yeah. just I'll just take it. So this book probably takes place just before the point where most people's reference for Roman history begins, right? Yeah, it's it's the prequel to what everybody does know. Because if yeah. if you started asking just like random people on the street, you know, what do you know about Roman history? Like just say things, you know, do free association Rome? They you know Julius Caesar. You know, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, they'd probably say like Caligula, Nero, mm -hmm. uh, the, like those guys, those early emperors. Well, you you bunch all that stuff together and it's really it's like that's about 100 years, mm -hmm. maybe 120 years is is where most people's reference points for Roman history are. And you don't know anything before Caesar yeah. shows up in yeah. about 50 B.C. and. Except for like Constantine, you'll get constant. Like people will say, like, oh yeah, yeah Constantine. But yeah, and so he's true. a couple hundred years later. But most of what people know about it comes from a very specific about mm -hmm. a about a century, a little over that. And so I just one of the big things I wanted to do with this book is explain the fifty years that came before Caesar, because it's mm -hmm. not like the Republic was super healthy when. Julius Caesar comes along when Pompey comes along when these guys have these great battles that destroy the Republic it's not like everything was great and they just you know grabbed the wheel and yanked it off a cliff the mm -hmm. the Republic had been already you know under pretty serious assault uh, for for a good hundred years before Caesar comes along and I'm you know I'm trying to explain how it is that the Republic got to the point where Caesar could just kind of push it over the yeah. edge. You know, for most people, I imagine they think Julius Caesar, they think this great military conqueror and erroneously equate Caesar with the glory days of the Roman Empire, not the decline of Rome. So did you find yourself in the position of having to maybe correct people's timeline and reframe their ideas about Rome a little bit? When they emerge as the power in the Mediterranean, when they are Rome, is like the prologue of my book. So mm -hmm. there is there is this connection between 
you know, the Roman military apparatus and political apparatus and administrative apparatus becoming the strongest thing, but having that lead directly to the collapse of their republican system of government. And so it's really it's it's the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, which is going to collapse within a hundred years. But Roman civilization, when it becomes the empire, it gets taken over by, you know, basically military dictators is, mm-hmm. is who's going to wind up running Rome. But like the glory, the golden age of Rome is is a couple of actually hundred years down the road. So there is this interesting connection between Rome achieving supremacy and then completely losing its old Republican values of mm-hmm. participatory government and limited rule and, you know, one person not just calling all the shots. Yeah, and I understand that the reason you focused on these particular few decades from 133 to 80 BC was it was sort of your answer to all the people who come up to you and ask, where are we in terms of the Roman timeline? Right, yeah. When, yeah, when I was doing the history of Rome— um, you know, it, it's a constant question. It's been a constant question my whole yeah, life. I don't know. I'm when, sure. I don't know when people see, you know, like right after World War II, people are like, is America Rome? <laughs> and so people ask me, you know, is America Rome? And usually it, it's not, um, you know, this is this is not a, an exercise in like really rigorous history to say like, OK, yeah. So it starts here <laughs> and then like and then like, you know, this period lines up with this exactly. But, you know, if you sit back and kind of look at the trajectory of Roman civilization from mm-hmm. their founding through the expulsion of the kings, the creation of the republic, regional expansion, then like sort of global expansion, um, there's there's plenty of decent parallels between mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of the progress of Roman civilization and the progress of American civilization. And so if you were to say, OK, let, let's start them both at zero and project them forward, um, you know, ha- are we like a new – thing are we just recently founded we're not just recently founded we've been around for quite a yeah. while you know are we just emerging as a regional power no that's that's already happened are we just emerging as a world power like no that's also mm-hmm. already happened but has the republic collapsed and been taken over by a dictator <laughs> you know everybody everybody on both sides of the political uh, uh political aisle will say if the other guy's president then yeah we've been taken <laughs> over by a dictator yeah but we haven't actually been taken over by a dictator yet so there is there is a there is a, a place between Rome achieving global domination, you know, inside the Mediterranean and the collapse of the Republic and the takeover by dictators that does have a lot of parallels mm-hmm. between, I think, where the Republic of the United States currently finds itself situated. It's really worth studying. I think mm-hmm. it can shed a lot of light on some of the stuff that we are dealing with today. Yeah. We do have this tendency to want to say Obama's Hitler or Caesar or Trump is Hitler or Caesar. And right. probably people who read the inside flap of this book read that and then say, oh, well, that's where he's going with this. He's going to say Trump is a dictator. That's not what you're saying necessarily. No, Trump's Trump is not a dictator. Yeah. Um there there are, you know, I, I think that we are at a point where there there are enough norms breaking down mm-hmm. and enough uh, we're we're being the republic is being, you know, buffeted by some pretty heavy storm winds. But no, I mean Donald Trump is not a dictator. He yeah. he does not have the power that, you know, Augustus yeah. wound up having and nor does it even appear likely that he would know what to do with that mm-hmm. power, you know, if he had it. And yet we do see, like you mentioned a moment ago, this erosion of societal norms and these attacks on the justice system, free press, the judicial branch, all of which seem to echo this gradual collapse of what the Romans called the most maiorum. Explain to the listeners what the most maiorum was and why its gradual degradation had such a big impact on the empire. 
so most Maiorum roughly translates uh, as the way of the elders. Mm-hmm. Um, the Romans did not really have an extensive body of written law. I mean, they didn't have a written constitution. They, I mean, they right. had written laws, but yeah. you know, compared to what we would consider to be a normal amount of written laws, like we have, you know, you just go down to like the local, you know, a local city hall. You know, probably has more local municipal codes than the Roman Empire, or at this period, the Roman wow. Republic had uh, from a from a written law standpoint. So most of how they operated was on unwritten rules and unspoken uh, modes of conduct, unspoken norms, where you just you know, if you lost an election, you were just like, okay, I'll I'll step back and I'll lose the election. There were there were certain things you weren't supposed to do. There were certain ways that you, there was a, there was a comity that was involved. You know, like I'll you know I'll come back. I'll try to get you in the next election, but I'm not gonna we're not gonna overstep our bounds here, mm-hmm. and I'm certainly not gonna like stab you to death and try to take power. So th- there are all these things that are there. Nothing is against the law, but things are against custom, and, and it's a pretty uh-huh. strong custom. And so what happens early on in the book is you start having political conflicts between kind of an intransigent aristocratic senatorial nobility and these these forces of like rising resentful populism. And rather than sort of coming together as they used to to solve problems, they start getting into these battles where people start stepping outside the bounds of most Maiorum. And they realize like, oh, well, there's there's nothing illegal about having the popular assembly depose one of my opponents. There's nothing illegal about uh, about trying to ram through this bill. It's just like the way it was mm-hmm. always done. And I'm just not going to act that way anymore. And five years down the road, then 10 years, 20 years, this is all snowballing to the point where now you have like literally armies running into each other because at the end of the day, I mean, even even us today following a written law, like allowing a written constitution to have power over us, that's just an unspoken norm, right? There's mm-hmm. there's no the the force behind it is mm. nothing but force. It's it's yeah. what, you know, for the Romans would have been the end of a spear. For us it's the end of a gun. That's really where all political power mm-hmm. lies. So once you start once you start pitching aside all of these unspoken rules, the last thing that you discover is that even laws are merely an unspoken written custom. And by yeah. the end of the book, you have Pompey, young Pompey, you know, saying to some some magistrates who are trying to stop him from running an illegal tribunal that is executing the enemies of Sulla, like, you can't do this. This is illegal. And mm-hmm. Pompey says, cease quoting laws to those of yeah. us with swords. And that's <laughs> that's wherein lies the yeah. danger. It's, it's not just that today everything's going to blow up. It's that mm-hmm. if you keep doing this and if you keep allowing it to happen, it will snowball and we will yeah. eventually get to the point where, you know, somebody's going to say, cease quoting laws to those of us with, you know, Abrams tanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that really fascinating in the book, this idea that they didn't have a written constitution. They didn't have a lot of laws to guide people's behavior and inform what was right and wrong. Was that maybe one of the fatal flaws that everything kind of revolved around the honor system? <laughs> I mean, it clearly was. That, that clearly was a, a flaw that was potentially exploitable, that, yeah, you are relying on uh, the honor system. But, like, you know, the other side of this is, you know, we you can't legislate everything. You can't right. legislate behavior. every every yeah. single part of True. behavior. There is a certain, like, unless we want to live in some, like, Orwellian dystopia, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's that old, like— uh, uh, you know, that which is not compulsory is forbidden. Mm-hmm. Like humans aren't meant to live under a system where that yeah. which is compulsory is forbidden. So you can't you can't cover everything. 
So no matter what, if we're going to live together on this earth under some kind of government, if we're going to if we're going to work together, there is an honor system that needs to be in play. We need to have some respect for that because otherwise it's like Orwellian dystopia on the one hand or just like pure <laughs> anarchy yeah. with like, you know, some horde of bandits yeah. coming around and just doing whatever they feel like. And yeah. I, I'd, I'd prefer to live – personally, <laughs> I'm a, I might editorialize here. I would prefer to live somewhere between yeah. those two extremes. You say that the Roman Republic was a victim of its own success. What do you mean by that? That gets back to the fact that their conquest of Carthage and their conquest of Greece mm-hmm. – um, that triumph, them them emerging victorious from uh, like a, centuries of conflict, really, as the most powerful force in the Mediterranean, that s- leads to a lot of these erosions of mm-hmm. the norms. It, there's there's a there's other things we can get into it um, that start being introduced. There's a, there's a massive run of uh, rising economic inequality where mm-hmm. the riches that are brought in as a result of these conquests are being concentrated in the hands of the senatorial nobility mm-hmm. and poorer Romans and smaller smaller farmers that are out there who had been the traditional backbone of the republic it was the you know the I'm I'm a Roman citizen I own a plot of land and that's the way we do it those guys started to go away they started being pushed off their land and bought out by these senatorial families who are you know really have like all the gold and silver of the Mediterranean world coming into Italy. So they're phenomenally successful from an economic standpoint, from a military standpoint. But it really does start to fatally erode their political system. And it, I think it does hmm. take down their Republican form of government. It was just unable to adapt. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Mike Duncan when we come back in just a minute. Folks, did you know that the average family visits five websites before booking a vacation rental? I know how that is. I'm a huge travel junkie. I've been to dozens of countries over the years, and I always spend countless hours online just researching destinations. But now you can spend less time planning your next trip and more time relaxing with Tripping.com, the world's number one site for vacation rentals. Whether you're looking for a cabin to get away for New Year's Eve, planning your next beach vacation in Hawaii, or that vacation in Europe where you'll live like a local, Tripping.com can help you find the perfect place to stay. Vacation rentals offer flexibility, perks and amenities that hotels don't, like multiple bedrooms, backyards, hot tubs, free Wi-Fi, and even fully stocked kitchens, so you can have a quick bite on the go or plan and cook your own meals. It's great for families and large groups. With Tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation on Tripping.com. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to Tripping.com slash kickass today. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash kickass. Tripping.com slash kickass. And now, back to the podcast. Now, among that working class and the plebs in Rome, did you see the same kind of populism and resentment toward the establishment we're seeing now? And, and did you see leaders who were trying to exploit that at the time? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
because, like I say, this this process of of rising economic inequality creates out in the rural areas. You have these people that had owned these plots of land for for you know for generations. You know, mm-hmm. my my great grandfather worked this land, and I worked this land, um, and now I've lost this land. They they did have a a sense that the way of life that they used to have was now over and. Part of the reason why it was now over is because my, you know, my bastard, you know, rich neighbor has, you know, bought me out or is expanding at my expense. And there's yeah. there's plenty of stuff in the, you know, that I'm that you're able to take directly from Appian or from Plutarch or from Cicero that are um, talking about these grievances. And absolutely, the, I mean, the first big showdown of the book in chapter one is is Tiberius Gracchus and his Lex right. Agraria and. What he's trying to do quite openly is like, I'm going to take land from the rich and we are going to divide it up and we are going to give it to the poor. And mm-hmm. that then opens up uh, a much broader you know, style of Roman politics. It's the populare style or a populist style of, of politics where you are going to go out there and tell – you know, the urban plebs who would like to have some kind of subsidized grain ration or the rural poor who want land or, you know, these equestrian merchants who have made a lot of money but aren't allowed into the political mm-hmm. system. Hey, we're going to we'll give you, you know, a greater say in uh, in how how the state is run. And, and a lot of it is specifically focused on lessening the power of the Senate, mm-hmm. lessening the power of that senatorial aristocracy. And that does become like a, one of the central conflicts of the Republic for the next hundred years. I mean, Julius Caesar is operating a populare style right. um, uh, political campaign. That's that's sort of what he's planning on using to rise to power. Yeah. And there was also a huge debate over citizenship and what makes someone Roman, right? Right. Um, and this is this is the other. So you have that side of things. It's like this, these battles between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. Well, when Rome conquered Italy... I mean, this is back in like the 300s. The the Romans did not annex defeated cities directly into the Roman state. Right. right? So they would they would defeat some city in Tuscany or defeat some city in down in uh, the Greco Italian part of the peninsula. And rather than saying, "Okay, you are now annexed into us, and you are Roman citizens," or even um, okay, we rule you now. And so we're going to send like a, a prefect or a commissar mm-hmm. from Rome to rule you. It was, you're still just an ally of Rome. Like you are a subordinate ally and you are in a Roman protectorate, but technically you're not a Roman citizen. Yeah. You're, you're not with us and we're not with you. This went on for like 200 years where the only thing that Rome ever asked from these from these cities was for, for those cities to provide men for the legions, right? It was, it was kind mm-hmm. of a military alliance. So we'll let you run yourself and we're not going to tell you how to do things. We're not even really going to tax you that heavily, um, if at all. The only thing we want from you is men for the legions. So then this go this unfolds for like two hundred years, where you know by the by the beginning of my book, Italy really is knitted together as a part of Roman civilization. They're all in Roman civilization. It's just that the vast majority of them are still technically non-citizens. Yeah. They they are still technically allies of Rome instead of being citizens of Rome, and. By this point, by the 140s, the 130s, the 120s, the the benefits of being outside the system have been far outweighed by the costs of being outside huh. the system. So they want to try to push their way in. The Italians are going to be constantly over the over the whole course of my book. It's one of the big themes. 
asking for citizenship. We want mm -hmm. citizenship. We want the right to vote. You know, we want the same legal protections that a Roman citizen has. We want the same political rights. You know, our, you know, rich local elites, we want to be able to have them be senators and go run for office and, you know, possibly represent our interests in this system. And the Romans, uh, they really didn't want to do it. They didn't want. They didn't want to give the Italian citizenship, and that became one of the parts of the of the like the Populare mm -hmm. platform, which is, you know, and also we will give citizenship mm -hmm. to the Italians, and eventually it erupts into a uh, full blown civil yeah. war. Well, you said that you weren't trying to match the U.S. and Rome <laughs> right, you know, right. point for point right. here, but um, I wonder in that case, are, are, are there some significant differences between some of the things that applied to Rome in those days that maybe wouldn't be relevant or wouldn't apply today? I think one of the big differences, and, and when you say like, you know, is America Rome, are Americans the Romans, um, there, is a, there is a huge gap between a conception of progress versus mm -hmm. conservatism. Okay. Hmm. So okay. my, and my point here is that the Romans, especially the political leaders were, were very conservative, small C conservative in their mm -hmm. outlook. They didn't like a lot of change. They didn't want, right. they wanted things to be the same. Yeah. They wanted they their wanted sons to their live their same. to be protected. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they, they yeah. liked the way that things were. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why they were so resistant to reform is not just that they thought it would be, you know, an immediate threat to their whatever financial interests or economic interests, but that, you know, we don't do reform here. We're, we're, <laughs> we're Romans. We, we plod along and, and we want yeah. things to be the same. Um, and so that was actually a huge, you know, like one of the big problems for the Republic was that it was unable to adapt to the new sort of imperial system that it was running they were they were still trying to run rome like it was mm -hmm. this little clubby city state oh, in italy and not really you know taking they weren't a step able back to and looking up, and be like huh? like look we're, we're running spain <laughs> and we're running greece and yeah. you know we're already into what is today modern day turkey they were still trying to treat it like it was this little clubby thing that they were doing and they were really hyper focused on who was up and who was down inside the senate without really looking at the, the bigger picture of, of like the health of the state. Mm -hmm. So that conservatism, I think, really hindered their ability to adapt successfully. Mm -hmm. So that, so the, the, the other side of this is that I don't think that Americans have a problem with changing things, with reforming yeah. things. We're, we're much more adaptable in that way because, you know, the United States is a product of mm -hmm. what the Enlightenment. Let's look at how things are and see where we can improve them. Let's yeah. use our rationality to, to improve this and we'll prove this. And and we just sort of take it for granted that things are not perfect mm -hmm. and that things can always be improved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether whether you think it's a tax cut or a tax hike, we're we're never going to just say, mm -hmm. let's just keep things the way yeah. they are <laughs> permanently. So so when it comes to like, can we can we adapt to our changing circumstances? Right. Can, can, That's we, where I was can go we, next. can we address reforms? Mm -hmm. Can, are we going to get bogged down in these same things? I, I don't think that we are hindered in that same way. We're hindered by other things, mm -hmm. um, but we're at least not hindered yeah. in that same way that I think that the Romans were. So how do we learn from history so we don't repeat it? How can we prevent the United States from having the same fate as Rome? Well, the first thing you want to do is buy my book, The Storm Before <laughs> okay. the Storm, The Beginning of Fair the enough. End of the Roman Republic, and then buy many copies for also your friends and loved ones. Yes, yeah. all of it. It's <laughs> available like it. as an ebook. It's on audio. <laughs> um, so you definitely want to read my book. Um, but it, do, it does a lot come down to, even if you're not just reading my book, uh, trying to engage with history to give everybody just a broader 
perspective right. on things. And I think right now, I mean, we the the twenty four hour news cycle isn't even a thing anymore. We are on about a ten minute news cycle, yeah. <laughs> and it is it is revving so fast that it is very hard. Like it, I used to say that we live in a in like a six month bubble where anything that happened more than three months ago is ancient history. Mm-hmm. And anything that happens more than three months in the future is like so far in the future, we can't even deal with it. I mean, we are down now to like a yeah. day, like stuff that yeah. happened last week is like yeah. ancient history stuff that's happening next yeah. week is like, well, we can't even, we can't even get yeah. to that yet. Like we have, we have 58 different, we have 58 news yeah. cycles to get through so between the, now and the end of the day. So there's this force now that's kind of working against people taking the long view of history. <laughs> oh yeah. We, yeah. I mean, it is like between Twitter and Facebook and the speed with which everything is working, it it is really destroying our ability to have mm-hmm. perspective. So even, even beyond just like, oh, is there a specific lesson you can learn from what happened to the Romans? Just the very, just yeah. e- even if you open Taking a book an and read something about <laughs> that happened 200 years ago, yeah. or better yet, 2000 years ago. Yeah. Like, this is why I love ancient history, because it, even if it doesn't directly impact, even if there's not a specific lesson that you learn, like, you know, always pay your mercenaries, right? That's an important <laughs> lesson. To, that's a, that was yeah. an important lesson that we learned in the history of Rome is yeah. that you're always supposed to pay your mercenaries on time. Uh, don't stiff them because then they'll kill you. Uh, but even if it's not specific lessons like that, it's just having, being able to mm-hmm. see a bigger picture and see that, yeah. you know, we, not everything is happening on a, on a, on a 30 second, yeah. on a 30 second cycle. Yeah, and it's been said that the doors of history swing on small hinges. I wonder, when you look at current events yourself or current cultural trends today, do you find yourself looking at those small hinges or prognosticating about where some seemingly minor thing might lead us? I I can't even keep up. I, I don't think that any one of us really has the ability to mm-hmm. grapple with all the little things that are happening yeah. simultaneously and it, it will so many distractions yeah and but that's the thing what is a distraction is is yeah. the distraction a distraction yeah. from the distraction or is this yeah. other distraction like <laughs> i mean not to get too far down the the, the specific things that we're dealing with but like uh-huh. is the idea that uh, the president of the United States has possibly been put into office by foreign meddling and and people in his inner circle actually have like financial and political ties to a foreign government who doesn't have our best. In- is, is that mm-hmm. a distraction from, <laughs> you know, a massive tax cut that is specifically designed yeah. or is the tax cut a distraction from yeah. the fact that and you're like, <laughs> I, I don't really I can't make heads or tails out of this. And yeah, it seems all important. And in, you know, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, when historians look back on this period, it, it, I will be genuinely curious about what they, what verdicts they start mm-hmm. to come to. It's like, oh, no, this was actually the thing that was important. And that the, that thing over there was actually a distraction. <laughs> it's just it's such a it's yeah. such a cloud of dust right now. Humans have emerged from dust clouds before. Like things have, you know, we, we can get through it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't honestly make heads or tails out of what is going on right now in the world. I cert I certainly couldn't predict what is going to be considered important or not important mm-hmm. to a historian a hundred years from now. Yeah, and you're right. It is hard to suss out what is important and what's a distraction because the news media is so entertainment based that we gravitate toward the stuff that's entertaining or funny that's Melania Trump's Christmas decorations at the White House. Exactly. There's that a, can there's dominate a, a news cycle. And that that's that's the problem is that a lot of it 
so I, I guess I can't say this. A lot of it is gossip, <laughs> yeah, right? A exactly. Lot, a lot of exactly. it, a lot of it is, yeah. functions no differently than any sort of tabloid gossip because mm -hmm. because it's easy. It requires no reporting. You know, you just have to kind of like make some snarky. Like there is even yeah. even you take something that is ostensibly real ostensibly about that looks like it's something important like you know trump uh or pelosi and uh schumer just last week um right they didn't go to the white yeah, house because trump said something snarky yeah. about it. okay well i mean this is kind of important you have the two yeah. leaders of the opposition party now refusing right. to have a conversation right. with the president but it's all very gossipy. Yeah. And well, at the end of the day, it's a photo op. Right. It, yeah. Nothing was going <laughs> to come up anyway. Or wrong. there was just, there was just one the other day, which is, um, oh, that that uh, Trump is, you know, been calling aides into his office for private meetings and giving them right. assignments like behind Outside John of, Kelly's yeah, back and like, yeah. okay, I mean that's that's important. That mm -hmm. I guess that there's. F that the White House is, which is, you know, ruling the country is not working particularly well. And yeah. that, you know, the president's going behind, but it's, it's yeah. gossip. Like this is gossip and that's, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. I think it's no really different. On it it, it's no different yeah. from like a high school. It's yeah. like, you know, Oh, who went behind who's back and who's, who's not going to yeah. stand next to each other in the school photo. And you're like, <laughs> none of you guys like this honestly doesn't matter. Uh, stuff that has no particular inherent value <laughs> in, in and of itself is suddenly news. Right. And this is something that, that like this that actually doesn't have much to do with the Roman experience because they didn't have, um, they didn't have like a, a press or a free press right. or anything. But they like had this. gossip, I'm sure. Oh, they, oh God! <laughs> I was actually, we were, I was just joking about this with a friend of mine. Um, that yeah, like Suetonius is gossip. Uh, you know, like a lot of what we take as Roman history is it mm -hmm. can can have those kind of salacious gossipy yeah. stuff. Like yeah. the stuff we know about Nero and Caligula. Yeah. Like a lot of it is like, <laughs> was he really doing yeah. that? Um, but I don't know. I heard Caligula had tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was little boots. Little, he had very, oh, he had really? very feet. <laughs> Caligula means little boots, so he had very little feet. Uh, no, he got that when he was a kid. But yeah, the 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 degradation of the the press, really, with the arrival of the internet, we we still have not been able to properly grapple with mm -hmm. what the internet means for news reporting. Um, mm -hmm. And our ability to fund and operate, you know, a, a press corps that would actually do investigative journalism and report on things uh, rather than just what is easy, which is to write a clickbait. Because, I mean, yeah. if, you're, if you're a young reporter, you know, you got like 30 minutes to crank out some other thing that's going to oh, get yeah. clicks. And what's what's easy? It's gossip about, mm -hmm. you know, these guys. What's hard? Actually digging into the issues, yeah. which don't get me wrong if you're an older member of the audience listening to this uh i'm not trying to say that gossip wasn't a huge part of newspapers back in the back in the day <laughs> of course it was but i think we can all agree it's gotten quite a bit worse well before we go i think that if there's one hopeful takeaway from this book it's that there are no hopeful takeaways <laughs> there have to be there are no hopeful takeaways uh, for well, then for me <laughs> the hopeful takeaway is that you're focusing on the period before the fall of rome and saying that that is where we're at we're not living in the age of Caligula. Nero isn't fiddling while Washington's burning right now. So in some sense, there's still time to change course before it's too late. I agree with that. Yes. There is some hope that's in there. And it, it is it is true. I don't think that we're too far gone. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that anything is inevitable. I don't even necessarily think it was inevitable that the Roman Republic go the way that it went. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly a couple of adjustments that they could have yeah. made, you know, in theory. Which makes it a cautionary tale. Yeah, it's a cautionary sense. tale yeah. of what happens when 
you know, an intransigent elite refuses to reform in time to save the system when, you know, if you have, you know, legitimate grievances from a from a population of citizens and also non-citizens uh, who are having their lives thrown into absolute turmoil by forces well beyond their control, you know, what is the what is the state's response to this? Mm-hmm. If it's to close ranks and try to protect their own power and privileges, then you're really running the risk of of major political upheaval. I mean, not just mm-hmm. and I know this not just from writing this book, but also from all my work in revolutions, right? There's this is this right. is a this is a fairly reoccurring pattern that if if the if a population that is being buffeted by forces beyond their control find no relief from the state and not even the appearance of the that state caring that it destroys the legitimacy mm-hmm. of the governing apparatus there's you look at the state and you say this isn't even working for me so why should i have loyalty to it if you're if you're a pleb who's been dispossessed of their land and you're getting nothing from the senate then when the Senate collapses and the Republic collapses, you're not sitting there saying, oh, I lament the fall of the noble Roman. You're like, yeah, screw those guys. They were nothing but good. for." In fact, you know what? Let me you know, I'll go bash one of their heads in and take their stuff. It's fine. Um, you know, the French Revolution operates on, yeah. you know, many of these same principles. Uh, I'm doing the revolutions of yeah. 1848 right now. It's the same thing. It's like right. the beginning of it, the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And you have these old conservative rulers in Europe who were not able to adapt and address mm-hmm. most of the the social you know the social upheavals that they were um yeah that they were that they were facing so the the lessons of of revolutions and the lessons of this book is that you know power is you know for better or for worse it's in the hands of a small minority of of leaders mm-hmm. and you know financial and political leaders and it's in many ways up to them to have foresight you know if yeah. if any if anybody needs to be reading history it's not necessarily just the citizen who's out there you know trying yeah. to go to his you know 40 hour a week job increasingly 50 or 60 for the same pay <clears throat> um, <laughs> or not able to have a job at all because you're working this yeah. other guy for 60 hours a week um you know that it's it's the leaders who could mm-hmm. use some broader perspective and to and to stop with their little, you know, their gossipy yeah. myopia of the Washington D.C. you yeah. know set. And if they could read, if I could put this book in the hands of of every of everybody in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, I think that yeah, you know, yeah, but it would be it. nice if they would pay for it. <laughs> oh sure, sure, yeah. Well, they, I mean, Buy they're, the ri- they're rich, they're rich, they're rich. They get things for free. Senate. That's the whole point. This is another yeah. this is another recurring pattern in history where. Uh, and not there is a there's a thing where the people who have get more. <laughs> no, and I'll, we, if we're wrapping this up, I'll end yeah. this with a with a fun anecdote, okay. which is that uh, so the the equestrian class, uh, which is a class in Rome just below the Senate, was called the equestrian class because they were the guys who were rich enough to, to afford a horse, a horse for yeah. the army. Mm-hmm. So they were the cavalry. So if you were rich enough to own a horse uh, that you could go serve in the in the cavalry, then you were called an equestrian. And there was a there was a very you would be enrolled in the equestrian order. And what happened is that once you were enrolled in the equestrian order, then after a couple of decades, you started being provided a horse at the state's expense. And it became this um, it became this sort of like social distinction. Oh, do you have a public horse? Right. Ah, Yes, I have a public horse. Why do you get a public horse? Because they're rich. They're the only people who were rich enough to afford a horse are now the only people who are being provided a horse at the state's expense. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a long recurring pattern in history of being rich enough to get other people to bear your costs, which is still going on today, of course. Yeah. So that was the movie star swag bag of those days. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you you're the only person around 
around who could actually afford to buy this, and you're yeah. the, uh, now, of course, the only person who's going to get it for free. Oh, well, of course, we'll comp this meal for you, you know, Mr. Billionaire. It's like, God. Yeah. Well, once again, folks, you need to learn from history and buy Mike's new book. It's called The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic. And you can listen to Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast and Revolutions on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Mike Duncan for coming on the podcast. Once more, you can order The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic on Amazon, or download the audiobook at audible.com. Subscribe to his shows Revolutions and The History of Rome wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit revolutionspodcast.com and thehistoryofrome.typepad.com. And follow Mike on Twitter at, at @MikeDuncan. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at @KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.